Well, I got a lot of good questions last week <laughs> from the lesson, both here in class and also from people on the internet. So there were a couple of questions I thought we probably should um, touch on because more than one person, you know, had the same question. One of the questions that I heard was, did I think that when the writer of Hebrews said various baptisms, did I think that meant the baptisms in the Old Testament and the New Testament or what? And, and the answer to that was, you know, it's, it's opinion and it's purely opinion because the writer could have meant whatever. He could have meant both of them. But I think he's just talking about the New Testament baptisms when he says various baptisms. And we're going to talk about that some more today. Um, I, the only reason that I took you back to the Old Testament was so that you would have a broader perspective on baptism because God just very rarely throws something in new in that isn't foreshadowed, you know? So, so Christ is foreshadowed all through the Old Testament, and I wanted you to also see that baptism was foreshadowed all through the Old Testament. And it, the Israelites are a foreshadowing of the church. They're a foreshadowing of us, of our individual walk as well as our collective walk. So there is, there is nothing that's in the Old Testament that's an accident. Uh, and someone, in fact, after class mentioned that the baptism into Moses, the verse we read about that included eating the same spiritual food and drinking the same spiritual drink. And how, how does that, you know, that just rings such a bell and resonates with the Lord's Supper. So there is, it's everything that happened to the Israelites and, and in the, especially in that desert, but really throughout their history is meaningful for us today. It was recorded and saved all these thousand years, not because we needed to learn ancient history. It's in there and preserved by the Holy Spirit because it, it has meaning for us today. We also looked at the transference of leadership from Elijah to Elisha. Remember we looked at that and how that could also be a baptism. And, I, and someone after class mentioned that Jesus' baptism had many of the same elements that Elisha's uh, did his his baptism inaugurated his ministry? It was the first step in his ministry, in his new role as our leader of high priest and king. That's Jesus I'm talking about, and the Holy Spirit descended on him at that moment, just like the spirit of Elijah descended on Elisha. And I I wanted to go back and make it clear that I was not suggesting that every time there's a change in leadership for the Israelites, that there was a new baptism. They had lots of leadership changes. What I wanted to do, you know, when we, when we do leadership changes, we always have a ceremony, you know, an anointing or a coronation or whatever is appropriate for that type of leader. But I, I think that for the leader himself personally, like for Elisha or for Christ, the change in leadership is a type of baptism. They really are going into a new role in their life. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a new baptism for the whole nation, okay? And in fact, I think that out of all the things we talked about last week, the, there's really only two major baptisms from a national corporate point of view, and that was the baptism into Moses and the baptism into Christ. The baptism that we spoke about for Joshua was, I see that as a subset of the baptism into Moses because they were still under the law, etc., etc. So if, you have, if you're still totally confused about this, ask me after class and I'll try to clear it up. 
Um, but where we want to where we want to pick up uh, today is where we left off last week, talking about the water baptisms, because we were talking about the fact that both John and Jesus baptized in water, for and they that it was a baptism of repentance. Uh, in your scripture references, we're going to be pretty soon getting to Matthew 13, verse 36 through 43. So if you want to kind of find where you are in your scripture references, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll say that again. But it's Matthew 13 is what you're looking for. Um, but anyway, they, the baptism of water that John and Jesus used before Jesus was crucified was a baptism of repentance, and it was a baptism that prepared men's hearts to accept God's purpose for their lives. It was a prepare the way of the Lord baptism, okay? That was, that was exactly what it is. But Jesus went on in his ministry to say that unless you're baptized in the Spirit also, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And in my very humble opinion, and you can absolutely disagree with me on this, and it's perfectly okay, but in my opinion, it's a mistake to think that the kingdom of heaven is something that happens in the future. The kingdom of heaven is now. And I think the reason people get confused is because Jesus always spoke of it as happening in the future. All right. But I think it started with his resurrection. Okay. And from that point on, we're living in the kingdom of heaven. Um, it's the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that Christ taught uh, taught about constantly. That's was his topic of conversation with people, and it is his kingdom. It is the kingdom that is governed by him. It began at his resurrection, in my opinion, and I believe also it will end at the end of his thousand year reign. Okay, we're going to look at some scripture about that as we go through, and both. Both the beginning and the end, you know, you're, you can do your personal interpretation. I'm going to give you the scriptures and you can decide what you think. But, that, but that's where I'm teaching it from. So I think that the kingdom of heaven is the next to last kingdom. Because the last kingdom, I believe, is the eternal order. Okay. After the end of the thousand year reign, when, you know, Satan is finally conquered, death is finally conquered, you know, there is no more evil, period. It's not that evil got locked up a thousand years. There's not going to be any more evil after the end of the thousand-year reign. So that eternal order is, I think, a different state of being. We'll have a new heaven and new earth. This one will pass away. That sounds very much to me like an end of the, the kingdom of heaven as we know it now. Okay. So Jesus, I think, also talked about this, and that's where, if you can find in your scripture references, Matthew 13, verse 36. Jesus left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's his title for himself. Okay, that's Jesus. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. That would be us. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man, Jesus, will send out his angels 
They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so that all of that fiery furnace, you know, all the evil getting burned, that's all that happens at the end of the thousand years. Okay, so notice the sequence of events. Jesus sows the good seed, which is his teaching about the kingdom. Those who accept the teaching are the sons of the kingdom. Those who do not accept are weeds in the kingdom. And that whole process of acceptance and rejection is happening when? Now. Now. Exactly. So at the end of that process, when there is no more choice, there is no more accepting or rejecting. That's when this says, this verse in verse 39 says, it's the end of the age. Okay? And then it says, in the very last verse in 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So at that point, Jesus will hand the kingdom over to God. There's another way to think about it, and, and that would be this. And that is that the baptism of Moses meant baptism into a community where Moses was the leader, right? Baptism into Christ is baptism into a community where Christ is the leader. Okay? And that community is simply named kingdom of heaven. Okay. Obviously, the baptism in water and, and baptism in the spirit that was spoken of by John and by Christ is our entry into that community, the community that's led by Christ, the kingdom of heaven. When Christ comes the second time, he reigns on earth a thousand years. But look what happens at the end of the thousand years. First Corinthians 15, verse 22 through 24. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, okay, which is the end after the thousand years, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And I think that's exactly parallel to the verse that we just read in Matthew, verse 43, where it says, we, the righteous, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. So I think this whole kingdom of heaven thing is when Christ is reigning, and at the end of the thousand-year reign, he's going to turn it all over to the Father. Okay? And that's what I call the eternal order, okay? the, the, final, the final kingdom. So there's more than just two kingdoms. There's more than just two kingdoms, in my opinion. I, and I call that last one the eternal order, just to distinguish it. Okay? So the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about is now, and it's the kingdom that Jesus rules. It's, that's why it's so important to read what Jesus said in his sermons, especially the Sermon on the Mount, because he talks at length about the kingdom of heaven. Well, he wasn't talking about something that's happening in 3,000 years. He's talking about something that we need to know now. So now let's look a little more closely at the rest of the baptism story. And this part would be the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We really haven't looked at that at all. We, we know where, where the baptism takes us. The, ba that, the baptism with the Hol Holy Spirit and with fire takes us into the kingdom of heaven, by definition. Okay, But how do we get there? All right, Do we pass through water to get there? Remember the water baptism 
so far that we've studied has been a baptism of repentance, preparing our hearts for the baptism with the Spirit and with fire. To enter the kingdom of heaven, I believe, we do not pass through water. We pass through death and then into eternal life. And let me show you why I think that. Look at Romans 6, verse 3 through 9. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him or over us, you could put <laughs> on the end there. Jesus talked about baptism into death. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus said, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is completed. Well, what baptism was he talking about? His death. Okay. Mark, look at Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 40. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he said. <laughs> and they said, Well, let one of us sit at your right and other on your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered innocently. <laughs> right? Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So again, he's talking about death. Okay, those are traditionally interpreted, both of those verses are interpreted to mean Jesus was talking about his death. So passing through death and into eternal life is the spiritual reality of baptism into Christ. That is what happens. That's really what happens. We pass from death into life. What was the physical act? What was the physical evidence? There's always some physical evidence that accompanied that accompanies baptism into Christ's death and therefore into his resurrection. How do we follow him through death and into resurrection? Well, look at what Jesus himself said. Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he said again in Matthew 19, verses 17 through 21, Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. And he meant the Father there. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. 
And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, etc., etc. All these things I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. And perfect here is going to be that word, remember we looked at last week, where it means get, reaching the goal, get to the finish line, okay? If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, the physical act of baptism into Christ, into his death and resurrection, is the act, our act, of taking up our cross and following him. It's, it's like the flip side of repentance. Teresa and I were talking about it before class. You know, as a sinner, you're happily walking down the road in sin. When you believe the gospel, the first thing that happens is you recognize that you're heading in sin, you know? You recognize that it's sin, you confess that it's sin, and you turn around. That's the repentance part, okay? Entering from death into life is the next step, okay? It's where you begin following Christ, okay? It's all part of a whole, two flip sides of the same coin. Look at Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's in this context and at this point that Jesus sends us the baptism in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Okay? This is part of a, this is a package deal we're talking about. Because at the point that we pick up our cross and follow him, we enter the kingdom of heaven, that community of believers. And the, this baptism in the Holy Spirit and in fire is available, actually it's necessary for all of us. It, in, it is what enables us to follow Christ. Otherwise we'd be stuck just like the Israelites who are following under the law. They, they had the law to convict them of their sin. But when they repent from their sin, the only thing they had to guide them along the path to God was the law that says, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And they found they could not do it. So for us, the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk and to follow Christ. Do you see the point there and the difference and the similarities? That our hope, no, our hope is the hope of salvation, the eternal life. Okay. They, they absolutely had the hope. The hope. The question was, did the Israelites have the same hope we do? Absolutely. God's promise always was the same to his people. We're talking about a difference in mechanism here. Okay? Um, so, so he always wanted to save us, even in the Old Testament. All right? So look at um, what Jesus said, because you know what? The mission that Jesus was given, if we're following Jesus, it's going to be the same mission that we're given. Look at Acts 1, through 1, verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is after his resurrection. Okay. 
at Act 1, verse 8 and 9. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That was the last thing he literally said to us was, I'm leaving now. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. Wait till he gets here. It's like a like a little kid in the grocery store. Mom says, you stand right there and you don't move till I get back. Okay, and that's what he said. All right. Acts 2 verses 1 through 4, which is just the very next verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the crowds in Jerusalem at that time were astonished that all these country hicks from Galilee were speaking in foreign languages like the scholars. They just couldn't believe it. And actually, since they were all speaking in different tongues, one guy would be speaking Ethiopian and the other guy would be speaking something else, it was just a mumbo-jumble of tongues and the people around them accused the disciples of being drunk until Peter got up and said, wait a minute, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So look at what Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the first time that water baptism was to be accompanied by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's where it started. In an earlier lesson, we learned that the Holy Spirit was given to the body of believers for the purpose of allowing us to act as a unified group. Once Christ left, we needed a new leader, okay? And it's the Holy Spirit, and that you can find in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We're not going to read it again, but that's the verse. While Jesus was on earth, he personally led his followers. But now that he's gone to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to lead us. And we have a new community, the body of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. Call it what you want, okay? It, we're talking the same community. I bet you never thought of the body of Christ as the kingdom of heaven, huh? <laughs> it's, it's the same group of folks, okay? Could be the kingdom of God. Could be the kingdom of God, okay? And you will find generally Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven and the other um, gospel writers use the term kingdom of God most of the time, especially Luke. There is one set of passages in Matthew where he uses both terms. And there are a number of passages where the same story in one gospel say kingdom of heaven and the other gospel say kingdom of God. For simplicity, I'm using the term kingdom of heaven. Okay, It's all the same thing. So we have a new community, which is the body of Christ, in a new place, the kingdom of heaven, with a new leader, the Holy Spirit, who guides us and enables us to follow Christ, even though we can no longer see or touch or talk to him face to face. Now notice what Peter is calling them to. Peter is calling them to repentance from sins and to baptism in Jesus Christ. 
And at the same time, he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the entire passage that we just looked at, where it is the repentance of sins, the turning to Christ, picking up the cross, following in him, and being enabled by the Holy Spirit to do that, is all now rolled up into one baptism. Water baptism symbolizes that. The physical act of water baptism changed its meaning, meaning right there. Okay? It was no longer only a baptism of repentance. It, that physical act became the representation of repentance, turning around, picking up your cross, following God, receiving the Holy, gift of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do that. Okay? All of that spiritual reality is now bound up in the physical act. So look at what Peter said, and I'm, you know, I'm giving you some proof text here, in Acts 10, 44 through 48. This is a little bit later. This is where he's um, gone to minister to Cornelius' household. And Cornelius was a Gentile, and, and God had to argue with Peter for a while to get Peter to even walk in the door of this Gentile's house. But once he walked in, look at what happened. In Acts 10, 44 through 48, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And that is such a great way to put it, because you can physically feel the Holy Spirit fall on you. Okay, It's not all the time. It's not necessarily at the moment of your baptism. But when you are called to minister, and the power of the Spirit is there to enable you to minister, you can feel it come down on you like a whoop, okay? It's, it's, it's even a warmth. Sometimes when you're praying and you're holding hands with people, the whole group can feel th that just increase in warmth. It's amazing. It's no longer you. It's no longer you. But you, you absolutely can tell it's no longer you, <laughs> okay? And the believers from among the circumcised, that would be the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on those nasty Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have already received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, So you can see that the baptism in water has now taken on a new meaning. It's no longer the baptism of John. And Christians get this all balled up all the time. Okay, It's no longer just the baptism of John. It encompasses that repentance, but it's much more. Now it's the baptism in Christ. So here's a story where disciples who had previously been baptized in water found out they needed to be re-baptized for a new purpose. Want to hear that one? Look in Acts 19, verse 1 through 6. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Note the word. They were disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we never even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Okay, and then I put a little bracket in there saying, notice the reference to John's baptism as preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So you see, they had been baptized in the baptism of John. And Paul said, wait a minute. I do not see the Holy Spirit operating in your lives. Did, what baptism did you get? <laughs> and, they, and they told him. And he said, well, you need to be re-baptized. You need to be baptized into Christ. And then he baptized them in water. He laid his hands on them and prayed for them. And they received the Holy Spirit. So as time went on, it became customary that when the apostles baptized someone in water, they would then lay their hands on them and pray for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Occasionally, those events got flip-flopped. Okay? Occasionally, they got separated, and it became apparent that receiving of the gifts of the Holy Spirit could happen before water baptism, and it didn't have to happen with the laying on of hands. God works how he wants to work. Okay, And we are not to make rules about this and put God in a box. We already read about the household of Cornelius where the Holy Spirit fell on them first and then they got baptized. Let's look at one that happened the other way around. Acts 8, 14-17. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and boy, those Samar Samaritans, they were even worse than the Gentiles. They were Jews, apostate Jews, as far as these Jerusalem Jews were concerned. And even Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And I think that little sequence of events happens to Christians a lot today. Where they get baptized with water... They repent from their sin, and nobody teaches them about the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they go through their whole life essentially under the law. Okay, They're just trying to do it in their own strength, and they wonder why they're not effective. Okay? Does that mean there's still law? No. The question was, does that mean they're still lost? No, they're completely innocent. They did, you know. But... but it, that's part of why we all need to be teachers, okay? We need, we, you can pretty much tell, you know, if someone's operating in power or not. They can tell whether they're operating in power or not, all right? And if you're not, get with somebody who is and pray about it because this is a free gift. All you have to do is ask for it. You can get down on your own knees and ask for it, okay? But it helps to be taught about it a little bit, you know, coached along mentored, validated. You do have to nurture it. You're, if you do not, the comment was, if you don't cultivate that growth in the Holy Spirit, by study, it, by, by, study by prayer, by service, you know. <laughs> A big one, by service, by practicing. Service is nothing but practicing, okay? You're just out there practicing, you know. Um, what Jesus was doing. So, so all of those things are necessary. So now you can see 
how the various baptisms began were foreshadowed back in the Old Testament, how each led to the next in a very natural progression as the needs of the body of believers changed. The Old Testament's baptisms and leadership changes gave way to water baptism while Jesus was here on earth. Then when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came to lead us into all truth. Baptism changed again at that point. And who knows what God has in store for us next. Okay, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a baptism at the end of the thousand year reign and the entry into the eternal order. You know, who knows. But, but the point is that we understand its significance now. And now we can make sense out of a problematic scripture. Look at Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So see, now we can understand that the former baptisms have passed away, or better yet, been fulfilled. Okay, In the same way Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And we can now understand how baptism in water and the Spirit can be called one baptism. It's part of the same ball of wax. We haven't said much about baptism in fire, which was mentioned by John and by Jesus. And there isn't a lot about it specifically, but I will share with you what I see. To some people, it is simply a synonym for baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they believe that because at Pentecost, it, the Holy Spirit appeared like little tongues of fire on each, each of the disciples. I think there's a little more to it than that. I think the baptism in fire is a call to walk in holiness. Okay? I think it's an offer of ongoing spiritual cleansing. I think it's an offer of ongoing standing in judgment okay, of Christ. Uh, remember the verses from 1 Corinthians 3 that we've read several times about how a man builds his works on the foundation of Christ and he can build hay, straw, wood, gold, silver, gems. And on judgment day, all those works are burned. And if a, guy, if a man has only built straw and hay, his works are burned up, but the man makes it through as through fire. I think baptism is in fire is simply us allowing ourselves to stand in that holiness all the time. Okay. My prayer to God is if I'm building hay and straw, I want you to burn it now. I don't want to find out 50 years from now. Okay? I want to know now because I need to change direction. I need to know my house of cards has fallen down. All right. I know I've got the right foundation. If I'm building the wrong work, the Lord is faithful to burn it up. And I think that's what baptism in fire means. I think if we accept the holy fire into our lives daily, we have nothing to worry about on judgment day. And I think that that's what those verses mean when it says a Christian has passed will not enter into judgment because we're walking in the Holy Spirit. Holy being the operative word here, okay? It's just like in the Old Testament, you could not enter God's presence without being burnt to a crisp, right? Okay, well, that's what's happening to us now. That is the spiritual reality, and that's my interpretation, 
of what of what baptism in fire is. You know, you could see it either way. But even if what I'm describing is not baptism in fire, I do know it's real and that God is faithful to do that. So now you can see why the writer of Hebrews thought it was such an elementary, basic teaching that there are baptisms, plural, various baptisms. The next elementary teaching he mentions is the laying on of hands. This is in Hebrews. We've already seen that that was the physical mechanism that the apostles used when they asked God to you know, bestow on new believers the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there was more to the act of laying on of hands than just that. The root of the practice can be traced back to the Hebrews' Jewish heritage. The laying on of hands was instituted in the Old Testament. It was instituted for a special purpose. Even back then, under the law, the laying on of hands was closely linked to baptism. You see, the laying on of hands was to be done during the ordination of the high priest. Okay? as he entered that leadership role. The ordination of his sons as priests and during the ordination of the Levites to the service in the temple or the tabernacle, depending on when when it was in history. But even more amazingly, laying on of hands during those ceremonies was specifically for the purpose of atoning for sins. That's what it was for, cleansing them of their sins to enable them to serve God in that special capacity. So look at this. During the ceremony of ordination, Aaron and his sons are supposed to lay their hands on on the head of a bull, sacrifice it. Lay their hands on two rams, sacrifice them. And there was a whole lot of ceremony and ceremonial significance in each step of the rituals, but the important part to us is the reason for the laying on of hands on those animals. Look at Exodus 29, verses 35 and 36. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. They repeated the ceremony when they were ordaining the Levites, that's in Numbers 8.12, then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of bulls, and you shall offer the one for the sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for Levites. We typically notice the sacrifice part, but we're right now we're focusing on the fact that they laid their hands on them beforehand. In all these cases, these men were passing from being ordinary citizens to being ordained as leaders of the community. They were, in essence, baptisms in which the men were cleansed of their sins and set apart for service to God. The spiritual reality is very reminiscent of what we read about Elisha and even reminiscent of the baptism of the nation of Israel. Do you remember what they were baptized to be? A kingdom of priests. That's what baptism signified for them. And and that's obviously what we're called to as well. Okay, The practice of the laying on of hands was a physical representation of transferring sins from a person to an animal so the animal could be sacrificed and the sin cleansed away. It's exactly the same meaning given to the laying on of hands during Yom Kippur, the annual day of atonement, when the high priest would lay his hands on the goat and send the goat out into the wilderness far, far away. So I have a question. Would you call, knowing that you're transferring, the laying on of hands signified transferring sin from you, off of you, (laughs) to an animal, 
would you call the act of laying on of hands, the cleansing of sin, a healing? Absolutely. Yes. Jesus linked them. Look at Matthew 9, verse 2 through 7. And behold, they were bringing him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, for your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to them, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your thoughts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Being cleansed of sins is a healing of spirit every bit as real as the healing of the physical body. And since the laying on of hands was associated with cleansing from sin, it makes perfect sense that the purpose of the other purpose of laying on of hands, even in the Old Testament, was physical healing. Okay? Same act. Second Kings four thirty two through thirty four. This is in the Old Testament. When Elisha came into the house, and behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered, shut the door behind them both, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Touching, okay, and praying is associated with healing of the spirit and healing of the body. And it became really prominent, the laying on of hands as a healing of the body in the New Testament. If you ask someone back in Palestine while Jesus was there, if you ask somebody, well, what does that guy Jesus do? What's going to be practically the first thing they say? He goes around and heals people. (laughs) Okay? He had a healing ministry. Luke 4, verse 40 through 41. And while... The sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on every one of them, laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of them. See, they were being physically healed and spiritually healed at the same time when Jesus laid his hands on them. And those demons came out crying and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking the demons, he would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And you know that though Jesus had compassion on our bodily illnesses, his healing ministry was always directed at the spirit. This body is just a temporary tabernacle, okay? He cares a whole lot more about healing our spirit than healing our bodies. Look at Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Those children weren't sick. They weren't being, having their hands laid on them because they were sick. Okay? Jesus laid his hands on them to pray for them. So we've seen how the laying on of hands was an important part of praying for someone to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now we can see it is rooted in long tradition. The meaning is all wrapped up in the forgiveness of sins, 
the healing of the body and the healing of the spirit. And nowhere is that juxtaposition so clear as in the conversion of Saul in Acts 9, verse 17 and 18. And Ananias departed and entered the house. At this point, Saul is blind. He's been blinded by seeing Jesus on the road. And, and Ananias comes in and lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road which you were coming has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptized. So Paul, the Saul became Paul, okay, changed, changed his name. Look, that is another example where, number one, he was physically healed. He received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands and then went out and got water baptized. It's another example of that. A fairly powerful Christian. <laughs> All right, it can happen in either order. So our baptism into Christ is linked to our cleansing from sin and our entrance into our new life, our calling to follow him and do his work. So it makes perfect sense that the laying on of hands is part of the ceremony of baptism. It also makes perfect sense that the laying on of hands continues to be part of the ordination of leaders, their baptism into their new calling and their new leadership roles. In this passage in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13 through 16, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophetic message, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In Acts chapter 6, when the, remember when the 12 disciples were getting like totally swamped? And people were starting to complain because their mom didn't get fed at dinner this time. Remember that? There was, what they did was they ordained seven men to help them in the ministry. And that, and that story of their ordination is in Acts 6, verse 1 through 6. In those days, when a number of, the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek Jews complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would really not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. So that proposal made sense to everybody. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert, convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So obviously Stephen at least had already been baptized into Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're laying hands on him as he goes into another leadership role. Okay. When the church sent Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, the elders fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them before sending them off. And Paul and Barnabas, in turn, then laid hands on the elders of all the new churches they planted. 
That's, you can find that in Acts 14.23. So the laying on of hands, if you boiled it down to its very essence, would be an imparting. Okay. And in, in the Old Testament, it was a transmission of sins from the people to the sacrificial animal. In both Testaments, it's a transmission of healing power, a transmission of authority, okay, a transmission of the power of the Spirit to enable that person to do what they're being called to do. Okay? Give them the boldness if they need boldness, whatever it is. That's right. We need to do it more. All right? As Christians, we need to do it more. Finally, in the list of elementary teachings of Christ, the writer mentions teachings about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those are core beliefs central to the Christian faith, and we're not going to go into them here, but if anybody wants to see some further examination of the topics of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, you can go and listen to Daniel and Revelation classes <laughs> where we talked about those in depth. So even as challenging as this list of so-called elementary beliefs might be, the writer of Hebrews is calling us to go even further, higher up and deeper in. The elementary teachings, which have fallen into disuse in modern day, are just the surface, just the beginning of a much deeper, richer walk with Christ that's available to us all. 1 Peter 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The important part of that verse is the reason we should crave spiritual milk. It is by this craving of spiritual milk that we grow up and mature. The word in is actually the word to or into, where it says grow up in your salvation. It really ought to say grow up into, mature into our salvation. It's like a child growing up into his big brother's clothes, following his big brother's shoes. We are to follow our big brother, namely Jesus. And that's exactly the imagery Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is a purpose in our growth and maturity. We're not called to mature for our own benefit, okay, solely for our own benefit. We have a reason for this. We are becoming, and look what we're becoming. We're becoming a holy priesthood, a continuation and deepening of the original call of Israel, remember? So what is the purpose of a priesthood? If we're called to be a priesthood, what is their purpose? And the writer of Hebrews told us that in Hebrews 5, verse 1. He said, a priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Okay. Now, that, when he was talking about that, he had in mind the earthly priesthood, the Jewish priests. Okay. 
But that would be a foreshadowing of what we're called to do in our new spiritual reality. If Jesus is our high priest, we are called to be like him. And we should consider how he fulfills his function as high priest. What is the function of Christ as our high priest? Well, what has the writer of Hebrews been stressing so far? That Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for us constantly before the throne of God. He said that like two or three times already. Okay. That Jesus understands our sin because he himself was tempted. Therefore, our function as a nation of holy, a holy priesthood should be the same. Namely, we're called to pray for each other, to offer acceptable gifts and sacrifices to the Lord. Not sacrifices of animals, sacrifices of ourselves. We are called to make all our resources available to the Lord as we care for believers and non-believers. We, we are called to be a nation of, of holy priests because we are supposed to understand how easy it is to sin. That's why Jesus got sent on earth. That's why Christians are called out to be believers from among men so we can be merciful with sinners and non-believers. Matthew 9, 12 through 13, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So up to now, everybody's been nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can go along with this. Now we're going to hit a roadblock. Wait till we see the next thing. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, I read that and I immediately went out and pulled out the Greek and looked it up because a lot of times when you get a difficult verse, if you look at the Greek, it explains itself. This verse says exactly what it looks like it says. There is no error in the translation. The heavenly gift under discussion, he says, you know, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, we have to pick up what that is from the context. The writer of Hebrews has been talking at length about the free gift of salvation. You know, if you refer back to Hebrews 2, he calls it the free gift of salvation. So this, this heavenly gift is salvation. And he's been talking about how important it is that we pay attention to the good news of salvation and not fall away. So without a doubt, the heavenly gift here in 6.4 is the gift of salvation, the entry into eternal life. It is a gift given to who? To non-believers? No. It is a gift given to those who believe. Right? That's, what, that's who that heavenly gift is for. And we have seen that to those who believe, they are given the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? We just read that. Verse 4, here in, in chapter 6, says we've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word in English, it would actually be partners. We've been made partners with the Holy Spirit. And that's an apt picture because the whole purpose of having the Holy Spirit is so we can walk effectively as Christians. The Holy Spirit enables us to walk with 
with Christ. We are partners with the Holy Spirit. And once we have asked for and accepted the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will taste the living word of God. It becomes something real to us, no longer a collection of words. The word of God is living and active, able to pierce our innermost being. We partake of living water and living bread that is Christ. Some commentators get to this verse and they start wiggling around, okay? So one of the wiggles is that, well, the word tasted means that these people who might fall away weren't real believers. They're not real Christians. They just sampled Christianity in name only. And I don't think that interpretation is at all consistent with the context here. Okay. The Greek word that is translated taste can just as easily mean eaten. It's the same word. Okay. I am convinced that the people who are being described here, who have tasted the heavenly gift, are partners with the Holy Spirit, tasted the good living word of God and the powers of the age to come, which has to be the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. I don't see how they could be anything but real believers. And yet it says they've fallen away. How could they have then fallen away? That would be like, you or me falling away after all we know and all we've experienced. How could we do that? It would be, it would have to be an act of will, wouldn't it? We would have to decide, despite all the things we've seen and heard and experienced, that we are willfully going to become enemies of Christ. We would have to willfully reject our salvation, reject the power of the Holy Spirit, try to bar God from our lives. They have been, the people described in this verse have been walking as committed, powerful Christians, living witnesses to the reality of Christ. And if they now reject him and call him a liar, think what an impact they would have on younger Christians. Think what an impact they would have on the world who observed them as Christians. They would be like the Pharisees who willfully led people astray. And Jesus had very harsh words for those Pharisees. Look at Matthew 12, verse 30 through 34. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, how can you being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That teaching of Jesus is parallel to the message that we're studying here in Hebrews. It addresses those who have willfully and intentionally become enemies of Christ. It addresses those who knowingly lead others astray. A Christian believer who has known salvation, tasted the reality of God, experienced the living and powerful Holy Spirit, and turns around and denies it in the face of God and man, is someone who is intentionally and knowingly leading other people astray. 
For this person, there is no forgiveness, according to Jesus. For this person, there is no possibility of re-entering the body of Christ through the door of repentance, according to the writer of Hebrews. Now that said, let's consider this, lest we get uppity, okay? <laughs> Think about it this way. That passage in Matthew we just read where Jesus was talking to the brood of vipers, the Pharisees. If one of those Pharisees had at that very moment cast aside his pride and willfulness and begged Jesus' forgiveness, do you think Jesus would have withheld it? No. The Holy Spirit in you tells you no. Jesus would, have for, would not have withheld his forgiveness at that point. If the Pharisee had declared his wrong before God and man and, de and begged Jesus' forgiveness, do you think Jesus would have rejected him? I don't. Uh, you know, I really don't. I think the message is that someone in this situation is someone who has become so evil that they have become evil to the core and are incapable of repenting. These Pharisees didn't repent. Their pride wouldn't let them repent. Even though they might give the appearance of a good person, they are the worst kind of fraud. Look at Jesus talking to them again in Matthew 23, verse 26 through 33. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, well, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would have not taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? So you can see the parallel between the words of Jesus and the passage of Hebrews that we're studying. They're not directed at believers who struggle with doubt. Different category entirely. It's not directed at people who may have strayed from the path and need some help and correction. These harsh words are for those who become enemies, especially those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. The part in verse 6 where the writer of Hebrews says people like this are re-crucifying Jesus and putting him to open shame is also consistent with Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees. If we continue what we were reading just a second ago, Matthew 23, verse, in verse 34, Jesus said, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Those 
Pharisees he was talking to were going to crucify Jesus. And then they were going to go right along and persecute all the ones who came after Jesus and kill them as well. They were going to join the ranks of those who murdered the righteous. Believers who today who declare Jesus a liar and who say God is false. Someone who knows better than that, yet still willfully deceives others. Those people joined the ranks of those who crucified Christ, who denied that he was speaking the truth. Just like he said to these Pharisees, you are going to do the same thing and join the ranks of those who, who killed people from the beginning of time, from, the beginning, from Abel all the way through to Zechariah. And that's what the verse in Hebrews means about re-crucifying Christ. That's what they're doing. But look at what Jesus said next in verse 37. Look at his heart cry to these same Pharisees. He said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See? Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So that's a dire warning necessary to hear, but God forbid that we should ever need that warning, and God forbid that they, even the people the writer of Hebrews was addressing should need that warning. And that's what he says next in Hebrews 6, verse 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We can take comfort in reading about believers who have gone before us. There are very few people in the Bible who are wholly good. I mean, King David, man after God's own heart, you know, the, the guy that, that's going to have Messiah in his, in his line was a murderer and an adulterer. Murdered to commit adultery. <laughs> you know, I mean, how bad does it get, right? And yet, and yet from him, the Messiah came. And, and if, you, if we are told to imitate those who have gone before us, we're not supposed to imitate their weakness, but we're supposed to take courage from the fact that they weren't perfect and they were weak and that the Holy Spirit will bear us up on the wings of eagles. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to look at the faith and patience of those who walked this way before us. Imitate them. They are showing us how to persevere, how to hold fast, so that in the end we will inherit all the promised blessing. Abraham is another example. He lied to every king that he got to. He said, ah, Sarah, you know, tell him you're my sister, because he figured she was so beautiful they were going to take her into, his harem, into their harems, and so he lied. He didn't trust God to protect him and his wife. God came down, promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
And Abraham looked around and said, mm, I'm not seeing any kids. So Sarah says, well, my servant girl's over there. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. But Abraham, Abraham, father of the faith, right? Didn't trust God to fulfill his promise. And yet, what are we told about Abraham? His faith is legendary to us. He is held up as the pinnacle of faith and belief and trust in God. And, you know, if, if he can be like that, God is not going to give up on us. And I think that this, ver this set of verses in Hebrews is a good antidote to the really harsh verses we read before. Because it's, it's trying to show you both sides of this picture, okay? That God is there for you in your weakness. And we know um, we're, the writer of Hebrews is fixing to talk about how God made an oath to Abraham. Well, that oath happened up there on that mountain. Remember when Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain and, and Abraham was to kill Isaac? Well, the historian Josephus tells us that Isaac was 25 years old when that happened. I think Isaac had more faith, if you ask me, <laughs> because Isaac had to let his old 100-year-old dad tie him up on the altar, okay? <laughs> and and get out his knife. Isaac said, where's the ram, you know? Where's the lamb, father? And so Isaac had to get up on that altar and let his dad tie him down, okay? And of course you know that God stopped Abraham's knife. And at that point was the oath. It's in Genesis 22, 15 through 18. We're almost done. We're running over a little bit, but we're, we're almost done. I'd like to get through chapter 6. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's the oath. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was the oath. So, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to in the next few verses, 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's saying not only did God say it once, but he also swore to it by himself. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to bring this full circle back to Jesus Christ in verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He reminds us that our hope is as sure as Abraham's hope. The inner place behind the curtain that he's referring to was a very special place in the tabernacle or the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And it's the place where the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant was, and it, which is just a golden box, and it held a sample of the manna. 
It held the miraculous staff of Aaron's that had budded, and it held the actual Ten Commandments, the stone, the second set of stone of stone tablets. And the lid of that box was ornamented with cherubim. You know why? Because that was the mercy seat. That was the earthly throne of God. And God's heavenly throne is surrounded by cherubim. Remember, we read that in Ezekiel, okay? It's also in Isaiah. That's why the mercy seat has cherubim on it, because it is where God's Shekinah glory rested on earth. The place was so holy, the high priest wasn't even allowed to enter it. The only time he was allowed to enter it was during the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16.2, the Lord told Moses, Tell your brother Aaron, he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The only time that priest, the high priest, who was the only one allowed in, was once a year on the Day of Atonement, and Jewish tradition tells us they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he messed up and they could haul him back out. Okay, It says that our hope is anchored in the inner place behind the veil. To say that means our hope is anchored at the very throne of God. And to say that Jesus entered behind the veil as a forerunner on our behalf actually continues that nautical theme because the word for forerunner is the word in classical Greek literature used for the small boat that preceded the big boat into the harbor. And so Jesus is the forerunner on our behalf. We're coming right along behind him. He entered behind the veil as high priest on our behalf. He alone is worthy to come into the presence of the Lord. And you know that at his crucifixion, Matthew 27, 51, tells us that the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two top to bottom because no longer was it necessary for man to be separated from the presence of God. And Jesus is still there. He constantly intercedes for us as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And next week, we're going to talk about who is Melchizedek.